This is the Aromatic Wisdom Podcast, episode 39. In today's show, you'll hear me talk with Dr. Kelly Ablard, director of the Airmid Institute, an expert on aromatic botanicals, medicinal botanicals that are at risk. I recommend you grab a pen and paper because you're going to want to take notes. You're listening to the Aromatic Wisdom Podcast with your host, Liz Fulcher. If you're interested in learning about essential oils, hearing interviews with industry experts, and discovering ways to grow your own aromatherapy business, this is the podcast for you. For more information and show notes, visit the website at aromaticwisdominstitute.com. Now sit back, relax, take a deep breath, and enjoy as Liz shares a dose of aromatic wisdom. Hello, and welcome back to the Aromatic Wisdom Podcast. My name is Liz Fulcher. I'm the founder of the Aromatic Wisdom Institute and your host for this show. I'm going to jump right in today because I have such a great guest and it's a little longer show, but so worth it. So the guest on my show today, oh my gosh, I can't wait for you to meet her. Her name is Dr. Kelly Ablard. Many of you who listen to my show will already be familiar with her work, but there are those of you who are new to Kelly, and that is why I have her here, because I want everyone in the world to know about the work that she's doing. So she is Dr. Ablard, and that is doctor as in, she has her PhD in biology. Her master's degree is in conservation, and her bachelor of science degree is in zoology. Biology, zoology, conservation. Do you get a sense that maybe she's passionate about protecting life? Yeah. She sure is, especially plants and animals. It is her work with plants that we're going to be looking at today specifically. Uh, she has taken all of this passion and really made it her, her life's work. And we're so lucky, we meaning those of us who use aromatic plants, medicinal plants and their extracts, we're so lucky to have someone like Kelly Oblard on our side. Her background, as you can imagine, is very impressive. And uh, I wish now that in my interview with her, I asked, so Kelly, do you ever sleep? Because she is so busy, so much in demand. She is on the cutting edge of everything. I've included her background and her bio in the show notes. But as I said, for today's show, our focus is going to be specifically on her work with the sustainable management of aromatic medicinal plants. So there are four reasons I wanted her on my podcast today. Number one, if you're not already familiar with Kelly Ablard, I wanted you, my listeners, to meet her. She's, she's first of all, she's delightful. And I want you to learn about her work in the area of medicinal plant conservation. So that was number one, get to know her. Number two, I want to shine a light on the work that she's doing through her institute. It's called the Airmid Institute. It's one of the one of the vehicles, probably the main vehicle, through which she's making her work happen. Airmid Institute is, of course, nonprofit. It needs all the exposure it can get. It needs donations. You know, it needs you to to help sustain it. And number three, I want the topic of medicinal and aromatic plant sustainability to be on your radar. It's so easy for those of us who work with the plants to forget about the source of our plant medicine, our essential oils, our carriers, our hydrosols, CO2s, all of the extracts that come from medicinal plants. 
we have this beautiful substance in a bottle and we often forget that's where it comes from. It's kind of like there are kids who live in the city who don't know that beef comes from a cow and they don't know what a cow looks like or they don't realize that that white stuff they're drinking in a carton called milk actually comes from a cow and they've lost their connection with the source. That's also easy for us to do as aromatherapists. So I'm always going going on and on about, um, you know, go back to the source. What is the source? What is the source of your supplier? What is the source of your product? The other thing is it's so easy for us to get comfortable and think, oh, you know, we don't have to worry. There are tons of plants. There'll always be oils. Or to not even have that thought, to just have the naivety of believing there will always be oils and I don't have to think about sustainability. We as aromatherapists, we as essential oil users, carrier oil users, we demand a lot of the plants. And we demand a lot of the people who care for them because we want what they are producing. In truth, we are privileged to have plants that produce medicine for us. We're privileged to have people who make it their life's work to extract the goodness from those plants, from the growers to the, um, you know, the farmers, the distillers, people in developing countries, even people in first world countries. We have this core group of people that make it possible for us to even have what is in our bottle. And as I always said to my kids when they were little, which I read for the first time in the Berenstain Bears, with privilege comes responsibility. If we want the privilege of having these amazing botanicals, we've got to take responsibility for them. All right, I have to be careful. My soapbox is starting to show. I've known Kelly since 2013. I'm trying to think if it was before that, but I know for sure we connected in 2013 when she and I did a plant distillation program together in Washington. And we've been friends ever since. And in those years that we've that I've known her, I've been watching her platform for aromatic plant protection grow and grow as the problem becomes more concerning. In the podcast, I, I wasn't kidding when I said get a pencil and paper because you're going to want to take notes, even though I will eventually have a transcript for this podcast. In the podcast, of course, she talks about plants that are in danger and so forth, but she also will give some ways that you can help, ways that you can get involved. She'll make a lot of references to organizations, places where you can get lists of the conservation status of plants, and all of that information, her website, her biographical information, all of it will be in the show notes, which you can find on aromaticwisdominstitute.com forward slash 039. All right, here we go. Dr. Kelly Ablard, Director of the Aramid Institute. Okay, here we are with my sweet friend, Dr. Kelly Ablard. I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast today, Kelly. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very, very happy to uh, be featured on your amazing podcast series and uh, equally your dear friend of mine. Thank you so much. And I mean, I know how busy you are, so carving this time out really, really does mean a lot to me. This topic is just so important, so crucial. Kelly and I chat a little bit before we actually started rolling the, um, you know, the recording button. And one of the things I shared with Kelly was that in 
September of 2019, I went to the Alliance of International Aromatherapists Conference in Minneapolis. And that was the first time I'd heard Kelly speak. And when she got up to do her presentation on essential oil-bearing plants, uh, conserve, you know, the conservation, the sustainability, I became so emotional and so almost overwhelmed because I did not realize the extent of the problem. I also, I just didn't realize that this is something we really, truly have to have to pay attention to as essential oil users and aromatherapists. So as, as soon as I had a minute, I grabbed Kelly and said, oh my gosh, you have to come on my podcast. You have to talk to my people. You have to move everyone the way you moved me. So I'm, I'm excited you're here. So my goal in having you here today is for my listeners to, of course, to get to know you, the work that you're doing, and the Aramid Institute and uh, all that you're doing in the area of the aromatic plant conservation and sustainability. And I have so many questions, but I'm going to try and stay on point. So my first question, Kelly, how big is the problem with sustainability of essential oil-bearing plants? I mean, do we really have to worry that we're going to run out of essential oils? Uh, That is a really good question, and it's one I get asked Quite a bit, um, and unfortunately, the the answer to that is it is it's a devastatingly huge problem. Actually, um, if we're thinking about just numbers and dollars here, um, you know, according to the Global Market Insight, back in 2018, the essential oil market exceeded seven and a half billion dollars. Okay, and it's estimated to exceed 15 billion <laughs> U.S. dollars by 2026. So this is all because there is this accelerating growth um, driven by kind of this increasing demand from industries, you know, the food and beverage industry, cosmetic, toiletries, the fragrance, the pharmaceutical industries, and of course, our industry, where kind of the consumer appetite per carrier and essential oils, including like, for example, rosewood, places this extra burden um, on already endangered species, okay, and unfortunately, in our community, there's a heightened demand um, from a lot of the multi-level marketing companies that kind of (laughs) contribute to this already big problem. So we may not necessarily be running out um, at any given point, depending on the kind of species that we're working with. But if we don't start thinking about this seriously, and thinking about cultivating and protecting these plants in a mindful, responsible, and ethical way, we will, to a certain extent, be losing many of the species that we rely on. And furthermore, a lot of the indigenous people that equally rely on those, not just for their medicine, but also for their economic kind of, you know, security and overall for their preservation of culture, is go- are also going to suffer just as much. This problem goes beyond just the essential oil in a bottle that we use for healing. This is affecting uh, lives of children and people every day. Absolutely. Can you touch on a couple of specific endangered plants? I mean, when when the issue of sustainability first came into my awareness, immediately, oh, okay, so what are the plants? What do I have to be careful with? You know, what should I be using instead? So if you could just touch on a couple of specific endangered plants Mm -hmm. that produce commonly used essential oils, and then maybe if you can even provide some alternatives, that would be fabulous. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what one of the things Aramid Institute does is it creates this list twice a year 
um, which sources information from the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which is the acronym for that is IUCN. And it's really kind of the most globally recognized um, organization that provides conservation statuses on these plants. So our team works together to research all the essential oil and carrier oil bearing plants. So looking at the list that we just released at the end of uh, 2019, there's roughly 35 or so plants that we are considered threatened or near threatened. Now, when I use the word threatened, what I'm referring to are plants that um, are considered either critically endangered, endangered, or vulnerable. Okay, so if we're looking at some of the plants um, that are critically endangered, uh, some of the ones are agarwood, for example, spike nard. Then you have plants that are endangered, such as rosewood, atlas cedarwood. You also have uh, vulnerable plants, such as um, Spanish cedar and Brazilian sassafras. So there are many different plants to think about. And some of the ones that I find in, in my personal practice and just kind of speaking with people is that spikenard is something that's quite recognized and used in, the, in our community, as well as rosewood and atlas cedarwood. So I do like to explore alternatives. Now, that being said, before I give you that information, I always want to support, there are people that are doing some great things with these plants. There are wonderful, you know, projects where there is um, definitely transparency and certification, cooperating, you know, um, sustainable cultivation of these plants. And those people, when you tend to work on that level, do work with indigenous communities that are you know, benefiting from that. So people are striking a balance and you can get good sources of these various oils. That being said, unfortunately, the majority of any essential oil coming from a threatened source is likely going to be adulterated. So that's our biggest challenge right there is the adulteration. So, you know, you got to be very careful when you're sourcing them, not just to ensure that you're getting it from a reliable source, who's doing their due diligence and making sure they're not destroying these plants any further, but also that it's not adulterated, you know? So it's, it's very, it, it takes a lot of work, but it's not something that cannot be achieved. So thinking about rosewood, for example, the problem with rosewood is it's kind of meeting its demise due to unsustainable harvesting of mature trees. Okay, so people are coming in, they're cutting down these big, beautiful trees and they're not replanting. So that is a, a very unfortunate uh, situation, and they're doing it for the actual rosewood oil. It's one of the most commercially valued oils in the world, and it comes down to one of the chemical constituents in the oil called linalool, which I won't get into that right now. Um, but uh, when I'm looking for alternatives, because I can't find a good source for the oil, and I'm like, okay, then I need to find an alternative oil. What I like to look at is the conservation status of that particular alternative, the therapeutic properties to see if, in fact, is very similar to the oil that, you know, we're trying to replace. Um, looking for contraindications, the chemistry, and also kind of the, the spiritual component or the energetics of the oil. So if we're looking at rosewood um, oil, as it turns out, one of the oils that is the one used predominantly to adulterate rosewood oil is the whole leaf linalool chemotype. Um, and if you actually smell that essential oil, you cannot really tell the difference from that in rosewood. And it comes down to the fact that it's the linalool chemotype, which I mentioned is the main thing that everybody wants from rosewood oil.
And so um, if you explore the therapeutic properties and you, and you explore the fragrance profile and, and the chemistry, it is such a beautiful replacement um, or alternative that I would highly recommend that people go to. And key thing here, whole leaf, okay, the leaf. So when you're thinking about sustainability, when we're talking about oils that are being extracted from wood, it's really important to think about alternatives, you know, or maybe instead of the heartwood, maybe we can think about the leaves or the branches of the tree that we could be working uh, with. And there are some projects underway right now, and Aramid is definitely working in that vein to provide alternative sources to actually rosewood oil. And I'm sustainable, mind you, and CITES certified, which I want to talk about as well. But moving on to another one, which I think we should be aware of is spikenard. So I won't get into, you know, exactly how I chose these alternatives. But, um, you know, unfortunately, spikenard is unsustainably harvested. Uh, they pull it out from the roots. Uh, very little signs of regeneration. Very difficult to grow at high altitudes, by the way very much susceptible to overgrazing, um, forest degradation, and just in general habitat loss. So it has a lot of things ag against it, unfortunately. So you were saying about it's not sustainably harvested, pulling it out by the roots and so forth. Is, is part of what Arvid's doing is to go in and educate? That is a wonderful question. And so we do uh, provide uh, education and training on sustainable harvesting methods and replanting methods. Mind you, we haven't worked directly um, with people that are working with spikenard, but we do work with people in Peru that um, on a similar plant where they're actually pulling it out from the roots and they're not you know, you need the root for spikenard. And so you have to know how to replant. You need to be able to do these things. But yes, we do. Aramed Institute does uh, implement training. And so we're working with people right now in southern Peru on the sustainable harvesting of an Andean mint that if we don't do something about, we're not going to probably be seen in about 50 years. And strangely, that's a mint. You would think, well, this can grow anywhere in the world. And, you know, but it's more complicated as, you know, it's never black and white. When you get governments involved and there's incentives for people locally to distill the oil and there's competition and these people are trying to feed their families, things break down very, very quickly. So I, that's a whole nother uh, podcast, but uh, to answer your question, we do. Yes, we do do that. Uh, you were talking about Rosewood when uh, I beg your pardon about Spikenard. If you can go back to where you were. Oh, yeah, no, great. And, and, and no, that was a perfectly uh, great question. And I'm glad that you touched on that because that is part of solving the problem here. So thank you. Um, and some of the alternatives, and again, I won't get into the chemistry. We have a lot to cover today, or at least that I'd like to say. <laughs> um, but the therapeutic properties, the fragrance profile and what have you. But looking at the chemistry as well and what we know about, say, for example, patchouli. Both Chinese and, and um, Indonesian, I think, are very good alternatives, believe it or not, to spikenard, um, if you're looking at the therapeutic properties and some of the chemistry. Now, the other good alternative, and I, I really want, it, want you to proceed with caution on this, is, the, is valerian, believe it or not, but the European type. That being said, um, unfortunately, valerian is considered in our list we just put out there. Uh, it's near threatened. So technically, it's not threatened. But I, I always say to people, it doesn't matter. Threatened or near threatened, I really need people to be approaching these and using these plants 
as, as though they are. So when it comes to valerian, even though it's considered near-threatened, be mindful when you're sourcing from places out of Norway and the United Kingdom because it's those areas where now the IUCN that I touched on earlier has recognized and has classified valerian as being near-threatened. So again, when, you, when you're working with plants and pulling roots and this type of thing out, you've got to be so very careful. And yes, we can grow. I used to grow valerian. It's, it can be grown. Um, but when I think about just kind of this growing demand for these plants on such a huge scale worldwide, this is where we're not going to be able to keep up with the demand. And so valerian is a good one so long as you're very, very careful about where you're sourcing. Um, and then, of course, there's Atlas Cedarwood, which I think is a, an amazing oil. Of course, it's been over-harvested for its timber. That's the biggest problem with Atlas Cedarwood, unfortunately. Um, it has very interesting chemistry when it really comes down to the primary constituents or the hematulines. Um, and that's what gives it its kind of natural uh, insecti insecticide kind of uh, property. You know, it's a re it repels insects. And so we can actually use it for, for that in itself. But therapeutically, we, we have all these beautiful things, you know, antibacterial, antifungal, anti-inflammatory. We know this about it. Um, but it is endangered for this reason. And so having done some research... Uh, Virginian cedar wood and Himalayan cedar are really, really great alternatives. And I wouldn't put Virginian cedar wood in the same category in terms of the chemistry. There is some overlap. But in terms of, you know, sharing the same kind of therapeutic properties um, that it touches on, about 95% of them overlap. And their fragrance profiles are very similar. And it's a very safe oil to use. And to really top it off, Virginian cedar wood is considered a pest in the USA. And so they want you to cut this tree down, believe it or not. So, um, you know, and, and I want to say too that it's not an exact replacement. There is no one replacement. All of these oils have very unique chemistries that act with our bodies in very unique ways, and they have wonderful properties that go above and beyond. So these are just ways to kind of work within our limitations when we're thinking about alternatives. Um, in Himalayan cedar, it's really kind of the most chemically similar, like we find some of the you know, Himalachulines in there, but more research really needs to be done on the therapeutic uses. Uh, that being said, I would recommend those. So this is kind of what we do. You know, we look at alternatives. We get people thinking creatively and out of the box. But equally, we work with people to find ways and to ask the right questions to support the people who are actually supporting and protecting the plant for those future generations. We want to, we want to buy the oil if it's coming from a good source, right? As you're naming the oils, I'm thinking about my own experience as an essential oil user and buyer, some of the confusion that I even have over, well, I've heard about Rosewood and I, I see that sometimes it's available and sometimes it's not. Some suppliers have it, some suppliers don't. As a consumer, it starts to become confusing for me. Who do I trust? And, you know, who's the right supplier? And one of the things that my listeners know, Kelly, because I and my students, because I pound it to their heads, know your source, have a relationship with the person you're buying your oils from. They should be transparent. They should be able to tell you the source and why they're able to, they don't have to give you proprietary information, but they sh certainly should be able to tell you why you don't have to worry because it is a, it's a source that's uh, sustainable. 
Whereas if other people don't, they're, if they're very sort of iffy in their answers, it could be that they're buying, they don't know what they're actually buying themselves. Um, so getting to know and have a relationship with and trust the source of the, of where you're buying your essential oils is crucial to help for one thing. It's one of the, one of the um, ways that we can begin to address this. Uh, let's see. Uh, I had a question. I'm taking notes like a student here. Uh, I know you're, pr- Oh, I did want to ask you to clarify one thing. All the terminology, the conservation status, threatened, near threatened, critical, endangered, vulnerable. Can you just sort of go through the list or just kind of explain what what are the ones that we really should know about? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yes. So threatened will only kind of house those plants that are critically endangered, endangered and vulnerable. And then there's those that are near threatened. So when you're looking at the differences between those three categories, uh, critically endangered, endangered, and vulnerable, it becomes a little bit, actually not a little, quite complicated how these things are um, differentiated. And there's various kind of attributes and um, characteristics that are through different assessments that are being done that have to kind of be teased out. So if one were to want to really go into great detail, um, they can go to the uh, IUCN website and read the different criteria to, which classifies those, those three Perfect. different categories. Um, but to give you an example, there's one of many, many different criteria that are used. But, you know, just this is, again, just one example. If you're looking at trees that are critically endangered, for example, or plants, this is not the criteria criterion that that um, gives it this category, but it may be. For example, just to make it very simple, critically endangered. For example, one criterion is, is it's less than two hundred and fifty mature trees left in the wild. And then, if you look at endangered, we're looking at you know less than I think it's you know twenty five hundred mature trees left in the wild. And then, if you're looking at vulnerable, it's less than ten thousand. So now those numbers change, and those are not. Um, those are one of the different criteria. And that's where people start to get very scared because they hear, oh my God, you know, there's less than 250 uh, rosewood trees or Palo Santo. That's not why it's critically endangered. That's one of the reasons it could be. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend, and I've gone through IUCN training. Um, It's quite a long course. Anybody can do it though if they want, and they can really learn the ins and outs of how to do assessments and what each one of those little criteria mean. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I went up a training. I could do the training. So repeat again, please, what IUCN stands for. Uh, The IUCN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Perfect. What I will do, this is for my listeners, anything that we talk about, um, websites, organizations, all of that will be in the show notes. Of course, all Kelly's contact information will be there as well if you would like to ask her a question. Okay, so the IUCN, you go to the website and you can find about how to be trained. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is training for people interested in doing assessments because that is one way that people can actually get involved. You know, you go through the training and you can go to different places and actually conduct proper population density assessments on trees um, or plants for that matter and compile that information. And of course, there's a lot of other things that go in in the bag uh, to get any sort of conservation status passed 
on a plant, but that's definitely the first step. They encourage people worldwide to learn how to do this because, well, we need everybody kind of thinking about this and how they can help. Not everybody has access to plants so easily or the uh, knowledge, you know, a lot of Peruvians, uh, the people that I work with, the Shipibo can take you right to a rosewood tree, but you drop anybody in there that doesn't, hasn't grown up with them their whole lives in the middle of the Amazon, they're going to take them forever to find one. So, you know, you, you want to train and teach people this. So it's more accessible that way and it's free. Wonderful. I know there are several resources where people can find the list with all the information of the, of the conservation status of the plants is, I know Airmid is one thing. Yes. Obviously your website, IUCN and CITES. So thank you for yeah, touching on CITES. That is equally important, almost if not more so than the conservation status because I won't get into, I don't want to complicate things by saying that a plant doesn't have to be endangered or threatened, that is, to be CITES protected, by the way. But oftentimes we find that many of the um, threatened essential oil bearing plants are in fact CITES protected as well. Um, CITES is an acronym that stands for the, um, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. Okay. Um, so kind of what they do is in the name, um, they make sure that plants that are species being traded, both plant and animal species being traded worldwide, isn't impacting their overall uh, well-being and uh, protecting them. So you have to um, get a CITES permit in order to actually uh, export any sort of essential oil that is, that is being protected by a CITES permit. Some of those include agarwood, for example, uh, spikenard, uh, rosewood, guaiac wood, um, even vanilla. So um, rosewood is something that people don't realize that, you know, and this is where going back to your, I, I heard you saying, you know, some people have it, some people don't, people don't really know where to get it or they you know, it is, and I think it's very interesting that we're seeing this more now and it's because there is a movement, there is a shift where people are starting to hear things and learn things. It's like, wait a minute. You know, I, I thought that maybe, you know, because in my experience, having worked with businesses, some people do, in fact, get wonderful sources of essential oil from cultivated rosewood uh, plantations, all done sustainably. The only problem is, is there's no CIDES certificate to export the oil. So that's being done illegally. So when someone has a certificate saying, hey, this is sustainable, this is awesome and good for them. You know, they're doing their due diligence, but what they don't know is there might be something else like a society certificate. So I've actually worked with organizations that have taken this beautifully sustainably grown essential oil off their shelves because they found out that it in fact didn't have CITES certification. So um, something else that AirMed Institute does is we work with people who want to source um, rosewood, say for example, and we um, work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to ensure that their supplier is, in fact, carrying a CITES certificate, you know, certificate. And once we have proof of that, then we can say with confidence that, yes, this is legitimately the real deal. Such powerful work that you're doing, Kelly. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay, let's see. Oh, I, wanna, I have a hundred questions, but I'm going to try and stay on, on point here. <laughs> I realize that sustainability and so it isn't just because of aromatherapists. 
that there are a lot of industries that use these plants, perfume industry, I'm thinking the food industry. But I want to ask you about awareness in other communities, in these other communities that are using, because I know that in the aromatherapy community, this obviously because of the work that you're doing, because we're worried about our the plants that produce our precious essential oils, there is an awareness in our community and it's been oncoming for several years. What about in these other communities? The mm-hmm. other the other industries, are they do they care? So are they having an awareness as well? Yeah, um, so it's been interesting as I've been on this journey because um, I feel and I'm seeing that having uh, been working on this for quite a few years, that as uh, we are becoming more kind of aware, waking up to it, so are other industries finally. Um, I'm working closely now with the perfume industry. Um, As it happens, you know, things like rosewood and um, there's a lot of essential oil bearing plants that we we cross over into that industry, of course. Um, And I'm working with the International Perfume Foundation to, and I know that in the intro, you talked about the committee that um, I'm now co-chairing, and we're working very hard to set standards and guidelines um, as a team. So the perfume industry, people from the flavor industry has also contacted me, and they're looking to bring awareness now in that direction. So that's phenomenal. That's really phenomenal. So, I mean, we are in the nascent stages of this, um, and it's shocking that this is all happening a little bit behind the times, but I feel like we're getting in there just in, in enough time to potentially save and make a big difference across the board. 100%. Ah, I would like to ask you a common myth or misunderstanding about aromatic plant sustainability. Is there something that you hear over and over again? Kelly is, and this is, I'm speaking to my listeners now, Kelly's all over. She speaks in every con- at every conference in, I don't know all the platforms, but she's very much in demand because you can hear what's in her head. It's brilliant. And we really need this, right, this message right now. So you must hear all kinds of things from people. What would you say is a common misunderstanding about aromatic plant sustainability? Well, um, well, thank you, Liz, by the way, for those kind words. <laughs> First of all, you're very kind. Um, but um, in my experience, just having um, people coming up to me, I, I, it kind of worked backwards. People are always saying to me, I never thought I could do anything. I never thought I had the ability to kind of make those decisions in a most, the most educated and productive way or you know it's always overwhelming for people you know and plus you hear the word sustainability is kind of a buzzword everybody says it it kind of like oh whatever sustainability oh god you know so it's something that gabriel came up with what i absolutely love he kind of in my mind um coined the term conservation consciousness you know it's like being conscious about it really being present with it and the in the biggest myth, really, what I have found for people is that they just feel that they can't do anything about it, that they just don't even know where to begin. They don't know what it means. They don't know where to look. They don't know. They don't know. They want to. They want to make a difference, but they just don't know how. I feel helpless, which is why I'm so passionate about sharing the word through you, because the more awareness that we have, the more, I love that, conservation consciousness we have as a planet, certainly the more the change is going to happen. But here I am in my, you know, my little aromatherapy lab with my essential oils. What the heck can I do other than be aware, okay, don't buy so much of that oil, buy that one instead. But what else can, can people do? Do you have some thoughts about ways people can get started? 
Absolutely. You know, my first, I always go back to the idea of just education. So what we like to do at AirMed is we do have this list that we work very hard. Now you yourself can go to the IUCN website. You yourself can go to the CITES website and you can do research and you can go to U.S. Fish and Wildlife and do all these things. It takes a lot of work, but you can do it. And then there's people like us and our team where we compile all that information for you. So what we can do is say, hey, here you go. These are the plants that you need to be aware of when you're making you know, decisions as to buying them. Here's your first step. So it's bringing awareness and educating people that these plants are in peril. Okay, so that's the first thing. And you can, we provide the tools for people to teach themselves or we help provide that information to them. Then it comes down to just understanding when you are trying to source your oils, you said it perfectly earlier, Liz, about really having a good relationship with your supplier. You know, and oftentimes I'm finding too that as we learn, you can teach them as well. I have worked with with, uh, different suppliers that didn't have any idea about CITES, but the list that we provide tells you what oils those are. So working with suppliers on a way and asking questions like, hey, do you have a CITES certificate for this? A what? They're trying to do their best. I've had experience hearing, hey, they were so thankful that they know this because now they really have an edge in the market for having the CITES certified oil. And also, I just want to say that when people are saying, hey, this is sustainably sourced, you know, they need to have some sort of certificate to demonstrate that. Really, really, they do. And if people aren't, you know, we don't expect everybody to have, you know, sustainable agricultural farming degrees under their belt and being able to go out there and figure out what questions to ask. But I can tell you that, you know, I can, and our team can help people guide them and support them in making those decisions. Yeah, I love that. Asking your supplier about the CITES. Yeah. Ooh, I like mm. that. Hey, are you listening, listeners? <laughs> this is how the GCMS report revolution, if you will, uh, started sort of 10, 15 years ago when we started asking our suppliers, do you have a GCMS report for mm. your oil? Please provide one for me. Because I want to be able to work with my essential oils on a therapeutic level. And if I don't know the chemistry of that oil, if I don't know exactly what I'm using, I can't, um, I can't buy your oil. And 10 years ago, nobody heard of GCMS reports. Now it's the standard. That bar has been raised. And essential oil suppliers are, are providing the GCMS reports. And that's how it starts. You know, that is how these things start. And if people start asking for it, they're going to know. And what that does is it pushes those suppliers or distillers or those people sourcing to make sure that that is happening. And what is that doing? It's just like the GCMS can protect us in, in, in aspects of making sure we're getting the right species uh, of essential oil or even maybe adulterated, Correct. Um, it is holding people accountable is what that's doing. And so when you start asking about CITES and, and education and this knowledge sharing goes back and forth, it's like this um, cross-pollination, so to speak. Uh, what is going to happen is just going to be expected. And the people that aren't, and what is that doing? By default, is protecting all those plants and the indigenous people that are working so hard to, to salvage and save them. So you're working at a whole nother level, which is super, super powerful. So I, so yeah. going to, gosh, I don't even remember where we started with this conversation about what can I do? Mm-hmm. Aromatherapist. There's a lot. There's an awful lot. 
they can do. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, it's it's never ending, and um, you know, even just growing plants in your backyard, um, doing self distillations. I know, uh, <laughs> you know, there's many things you can do, um, and just actually getting involved in projects where uh, Indigenous people and community are working very hard to preserve culture through. Um, promotion and protection of their traditional plant medicine. You know, when you lose trees and you lose, you know, the medicine, it's more than that loss. It's not, it's more than loss of biodiversity, but it's loss of culture. It's loss of knowledge. And so, you know, it, it, it's super, super um, deep. You know, it's not, it's not this layer type thing. You know, we say words like sustainability and conservation and indigenous people, and we use these these terms and we talk about it, but they're all connected, and it's so very much a part of the how the world works and who we are as people and the knowledge that we have. You know, the pharmaceuticals and the companies that are using the pharmaceuticals, where do you think a lot of that is stemmed from? You know, indigenous knowledge of plants out in the Amazon. Okay, you know, I have gone out there and they say to me, it took a long while to really gain this trust with the Shipibo, by the way. But, you know, Kelly, this is the tree that cures cancer. We know this. Please don't tell anybody. But we're going to share this with you, you know. But then you have somebody that comes in and will take that knowledge and then sell it to the pharmaceuticals, you know. I mean, but where do you think it's all coming from? It's all connected. We all are one. Everything we do is one. Every action you, you put forward is, uh, is going to affect something or someone. So, you know, the way we carry ourselves, the questions that we ask every day, it is, in fact, protecting those generations, like the Iroquois Nation said, the great law of the Iroquois Nation. You make decisions today that are going to affect the people, our children, 140 years down the road. That's how you live today. And if it means going to, you know, the IUCN website, you know, Aramid Institute, if it means asking your supplier if they have CITES certification, or you really proved to me that that white sage was, you know, harvested with a permit, whatever it is, that extra step, you can't go wrong. You just can't go wrong. And something else I want to say, even though <laughs> I have to say this, having a really strong scientific background, I'll tell you one thing, the plants work with us. And this is where everything I've learned in science, it makes no sense at all, because I find that when the plants are calling, and if you're listening, you will have the support and you will make those decisions and they all, you are all working together. As I come back to the idea of one, it's amazing the level of protection that the plants will infer as well to you. It's like you do work with the plants. And I have... I have been in situations, and mind you, every culture that I've worked with, every tribe that I've worked with in these indigenous populations always get their wisdom and their knowledge directly from the plant. And now I understand what that means. And it's beyond our comprehension. What it is, it's, it's having faith and understanding that they are a species and we are all somehow working together. And if you could do that, you'd be surprised at the difference you can make. Thank you. That was uh, very powerful. I actually just have one more question, I think, for today. And this is about your wonderful Airmed Institute. What exciting for 2020? 
Okay, well, um, thank you. Yeah, we've got some great things on the horizon. Um, the Toucan Project, which of course is all about um, uh, getting those, you know, the fair trade, uh, the rosewood, the sustainable cultivation of rosewood with the Shipibo people. Um, we have over a thousand rosewood trees right now that we've um, been nurturing. Um, and it's all been through these wonderful donations of people um, in the last four or five years. Um, and uh, phase four is coming up in 2020, by the way. We're going to be looking at the CITES, uh, working with government officials, also thinking about other aromatic medicinal plants being used in the perfume industry like Piri Piri and how we're going to uh, help the in, in, local indigenous people uh, work with that. Um, we're looking at projects potentially in Ecuador for Rosewood and also maybe being working uh, with the um, uh, indigenous uh, First Nations people in BC and looking at how they're using a lot of the aromatic medicine and uh, ways and things that they're struggling with in terms of um, protecting their, their plants. Because not only does it come into like, you know, just the human uh, impact, but there's also climate changes is driving many um, uh, horrible things that have happened, at least in Peru, and I know worldwide, where it is affecting their plant medicine. So Aramid is looking at 2020, and we're thinking about conservation genetics. We're thinking about population density assessments, uh, reassessment of rosewood. We're looking at climate change and how we need to think about that as a community. And, um, you know, starting some new projects. Is it Aramid.com? It's AramidInstitute.com. Yep. And um, we have memberships, people can get involved, and that money goes directly into, of course, the work that we do. Yeah, take a look. Kelly, I could talk to you all day. My heart, <laughs> this is exactly how I felt the first time I heard Kelly speak up on the stage with her slides and her charts, and wow. And But you can tell that Kelly has no interest at all in this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I hate it. I can't believe you dragged me to... <laughs> So much passion and love and commitment, and we are so lucky to have you. We meeting the planet, honestly. It sounds a bit corny, but I really mean that. I appreciate your being a warrior for the plants. Thank you, Liz. And you know, just by having this discussion and reaching out and us and us bonding, you know, you are a fellow warrior because you're spreading the word. You have made this. You've already committed, and you've been heard. And I'm. I greatly appreciate it. The Aramid team appreciates it. Um, and the plants, most of anything, and the indigenous people appreciate uh, you giving us the platform to share uh, this really, really important message. So you are, you are a fellow warrior and protector. So thank you. So there you have it. I'd like to uh, publicly say to uh, Kelly Ablard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for giving us a bit of your time and so much knowledge and information that we can then also go out and help continue doing your work. Listeners, how excited are you right now? How inspired are you? Go to CITES, go to the Red List, look at the statistics, go to the Airmid Institute, make a donation, get involved, volunteer, contact uh, Kelly and ask her how you can help. Oh, that was great. If you'd like to have other guests on the show that for me to interview, please send me an email and let me know that. It's not something I've done much in my history of podcasting. If there's someone in particular that you feel would contribute greatly to all of us and our education about uh, aromatherapy, send me an email, 
liz at aromaticwisdom.com. And in the header, in the subject line, just put guest suggestion. There we go. All right, that's it for today. I'm not doing a Smell My Life this week because the podcast was a little longer than usual. But I will be back with episode 40 where I talk about lavender hydrosol and the different ways you can use it. Until next time, be happy, be well. Be well.